0: Our faith verse, Bible engagement, our faith verse. We are still looking at Psalm 37, 23 for our Bible engagement project. Um, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. If you were here last week, you heard me talk a little bit more about this. Just remember... God directs the steps of the godly. What does that mean? It means when our hearts are positioned to honor him, to know him, to love him, our thoughts, our minds, our decisions are going to walk in a direction that God would want us to walk in. And we're also open with our eyes and our ears and our mind to hear him speak to us to be able to walk in that direction. The scriptures say that God delights in the things that we delight in. When we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. So it doesn't mean if we choose to follow God, that's our key to getting stuff we want. It's no, our fullness, our meat, our bread, who we're supposed to be as individuals. If we are hungrier for God than we are for the things of the world, where we go in this life will be directed and determined by God. Make sense? And he delights in every detail of our lives. So he's not far away. He's close. He's intimate. He's intimate. I'm really, really excited. It's a great scripture, man. It just if you meditate on that scripture, it says a lot about the character of God and how he sees us as people. Today we are on volume three, session four of the Bible engagement project, and we are looking, if you have your Bibles at Joshua chapter five, verses thirteen through chapter six, verse twenty. Okay, that's the official passage in this series, Volume 3, Session 4. It's Joshua, Chapter 5, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Joshua. Okay, sixth book in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can turn there uh, or you can just follow along with some of the slides that we have. Um, This morning, uh, I always like to give you the message title. If you're listening to me at any point in time, over time, you notice I kind of do things in like the same rhythm of how I do things because I learn a certain way. And I also want to be able to tell you what we're going to talk about. Then I want to talk about it and then I'm going to tell you. But I know for me, if I don't hear the same thing over and over again, I can forget it. So my hope is that this will speak to you And the title connects with you. The message title today is called Trusting God Through the Impossible. Trusting God Through the Impossible. Volume 3 in the Bible engagement is the main key theme is stepping out, but trusting God through the impossible. I'm not going to say anything else about that, but I'm going to start reading in chapter 6 and I'm going to ask you to follow along. We're going to read all 20 verses of Joshua chapter 6 together. You can follow along beginning in verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, "Take up the ark, of, uh, take up the ark of the covenant and the Lord, and have seven of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it." And he ordered the army, Advance! March around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Verse 12 Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Okay, let's pray again. God, give us wisdom to rightly divide this, to understand Although there's so many things we can pull out of it, I pray that we, I pray what we learn and what we take out of this, Lord, is not just an invention from man, but it really is truth from your spirit. Um, open our hearts this morning, and may we, be, may we be encouraged, challenged, and draw closer to you as a result of your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. This is an impressive example of trusting God with the impossible. Would you agree, right? If you know anything about the story of Jericho, it is one of the more popular stories in Scripture, in the church, outside of the church. People have heard this story about Israel going into a promised land, surrounding this city, marching around this city one time a day for six days, seven times on the last day, shouting as loud as they can, and the walls coming down. I have to be honest, walking through this this message, and thinking about this this week, I couldn't help but think of the fact that our kids are now older, our youngest is a sophomore in college, but literally, and I was going over my notes yesterday, one of my kids told me, they said, you know, you're talking about Jericho, I still think of like purple slushies coming off the wall from Veggie Tales, and some of you, maybe if you're VeggieTales people, you know that, you know, Josh and the Big Wall was one of those, those big video things, and the peas were on the wall. It's kind of like if, if God, cartoons, vegetables, and Monty Python came together, that's what that video really was, if some of you know what I'm talking about. And the peas with their little French accent were putting slushies and throwing them as the, as the people were marching around, or the veggies were marching around the wall. I remember that, and as I'm going through this, I'm like, I remember this, and I had to remind myself over and over again that my theological understanding can't come from vegetables on a television. I need to understand what God's word says. Because there is a significance to the cartoon for the kids to understand. But what Israel experienced was completely miraculous. And it was an impossibility that they never could have done in their own strength. I want to share just how impossible it may have been. So what I did is I just have a couple slides. Let me just show you the first one here. Okay, On the left, on your left, okay, is more of a current aerial view of the ancient st- Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho. And it doesn't have anything left of it. It's just kind of the, the general area. And if you can notice, there's a lot of mountainous areas. It had a huge incline. The place, It wasn't a flat area. It had a lot of embankments and a lot of mountainous region where you could build a city on this top of this space and be protected by people all around you. So it really was a fortress without even the walls because it already had natural uh, topography to encourage that. But on the right is an artist's rendition or a drawing of what it would have looked like. And some of you may not know this, but the ancient Jericho actually had two layers of walls. It wasn't a layer, it was two. And the whole thing was around 10 acres of space, 9 to 10 acres. The top one was about 6 acres, okay? The whole thing was on a slope on the bottom. And it's hard to see all the way in the bottom, but there was a grassy embankment that came up to the first wall, and then the wall went up to another embankment to the following wall. And there's that picture there. This is what it looked like, to give you an idea, of what Israel would have been facing when they walked into the Promised Land, knowing that Jericho was the first city that God was going to lead them to conquer. If you can't see them because of the picture, all the way on the down there, there's a couple little soldiers on the bottom, okay? There was a hill or an embankment that went up to what was a retaining wall, okay, made of stone. And then on top of that retaining wall was a, another wall of mud and brick. Then behind that was the first um, incline where people did leave, leave, or sorry, live. They had some different houses and stuff where they lived there to another wall up on top. Here's what's so critical about this the height from where those guys are standing, to the base of the upper city wall, not the top, the base was approximately 46 feet. Approximately. From where they stood to the base of the upper city wall. Then the wall went on top of that. Could you imagine what that would be like to be sitting at the bottom or standing at the bottom of the wall and looking up at something that could have been upwards of 55 or 60 feet tall through two levels of walls? How in the world Would the nation of Israel overcome this huge obstacle? It seems like an impossibility, doesn't it? I mean, this is the way you'd think. The city was fortified. They were not at all in any risk of danger during this time. The harvest season was taken care of. There was a natural spring that actually went right through the city. It was part of the water, so they had a water supply. They had food supply. Everything was shored up because they knew that Israel was on the march and coming. They were not in jeopardy of being conquered because they were going to get, you know, f- snuffed out due to lack of food or water provisions. So God had to intervene and do something supernatural. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time today and unpack all the little details of how this could have happened and it didn't because I don't think it's as relevant for us. But the principle is significant because I'm willing to bet in the physical realm, none of us have anything like this to conquer in our lives. I mean, unless you're a rock climber and you're going to go to Yosemite and you're going to start climbing rocks, no one's going to try to break through. There isn't any city you're trying to conquer. But here's what I do believe. I do believe the idea of overcoming and trusting God through the impossible is something that we can all relate to. Because the impossible can be physical. It can be subjective. It can be objective. It can be physical. It can be figurative. It can be literal. It doesn't. My point is sometimes we have physical things that we have to overcome. Sometimes we have literal or or figurative things that we need to overcome. So you may not have to conquer a city or physical walls, but I do believe every day we face impossible things in our life and through our lives. You might say, well, what are some examples of that? Maybe I don't have to give you an example because maybe you're walking through right now something that feels like an impossibility. Maybe you walk through depression. That can feel like an impossibility. People that wrestle with that over extended periods of time and the statistics when people feel like they can't overcome it and they're defeated by that. Or maybe you're wrestling with anxiety, not just you feel a little nervous, but crippling anxiety, and you don't know how to walk through that time and experience true peace. Maybe you're walking through a time of broken relationships and you're struggling with broken relationships. Maybe it's the culture around us that continues to emphasize and push ungodly priorities and behaviors. Can't that feel like a wall that we can't overcome in our lives? That every turn you can see something, you can watch something, you can have something put into your life. Just thinking about this the other day, and I was reminded again, we do not need to go to a stationery store down the road and ask for a magazine behind the counter that some 30 or 40 year old guy would ask you to pay for to watch something that's inappropriate or to see something inappropriate. It's all on our phones. Everybody has it on their phones. And even if you have all the guards and all, the, all the, um, the things in your phone to protect you or your family against those things, people find ways to still get past that and overcome those barriers. It's almost like a non-stop, how do I say, a full force attack against our own souls to fill our minds and our hearts with things that are impure, things that are ungodly. Maybe you're, impossible thing is incurable sickness or the civil unrest that we have in our country you know one thing that I was amazed about last week during the Super Bowl were those Jesus gets us commercials and I think that I think they were really cool you know people were criticizing I heard people criticize you could have spent 20 million dollars to feed the poor you know what There's a lot of things you could do with a lot of money. But when someone has billions of dollars and they're a believer and they want to put 20 million in a Super Bowl ad, you go for it. Because it created so much uh, conversation for people to talk about. But I loved those commercials, that commercial where it was talking about the unrest in our world and how Jesus loves those that hate us. Or Jesus loves those that we hate. And I think that was really powerful for us to consider what are impossible things in our lives. There is unrest in relationships. There's unrest in our countries. Countries are at odds with each other. They want to kill each other and blow each other up. This is what we live with all the time. Or how about just the fallout that still is evident from COVID-19 over the last few years? Things that we see today and things that we will see for years to come. We just feel like there are obstacles. Just a few, ex- few examples. Maybe you have one that's different than that, and I'm sure you probably do. But the point of the matter is, we all struggle with impossibilities. How do we wrestle with impossibilities, and how do we trust God with the impossible? That's my question for today. How can we trust God when faced with the impossible? What do you do when you are faced with the impossible? What am I supposed to do when I am faced with the impossible in this life? This is why I think this passage is so significant, because though the story may not be relevant to us today, the principles and what God did with Israel, through Israel, completely relates to us today, and we see that truly manifest through the person of Jesus Christ. So, there are some things that we can apply today to answer this question, but here's the part that's really, what's really amazing. We just read chapter 6 that talks about how God used Israel and God actually, through their, um, their obedience, defeated the city of Jericho. But for us to understand how they did that, we need to go back a chapter and we need to look at some pieces within the chapter. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at three different things that we need to do to trust God through the impossible okay? Trusting God through the impossible. I'm going to look at three of them, and I'm going to pull them out of chapter 5 and chapter 6 just so you can see how this relates to them and how it needs to relate to us as well today. The first thing that Israel did in trusting God through the, the impossible, and it's the same thing that we should do, is respond with repentance. When we are faced with impossible situations, we need to respond to God with repentance. Now, repentance is a very big word Some people misunderstand what it means. They associate it with strong fists, authoritarian um, messages and voices or leaders. Shame, not just guilt or conviction, but shame. People pounding pulpits. Responding with repentance is the first thing that we need to do. And I want to read where I get this out of chapter 5, and then I want to talk about it, explain why I think this is so important. Joshua 5, 1 through 5, says this, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeah Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. What does circumcision have to do with repentance for the nation of Israel? And how does it relate to us? Here's what I think I see here. Repentance is a turning away from evil and embracing the things of God. It's not just remorse. Remorse is we're sad for something that we've done. Asking for forgiveness, but then choosing a different path. Some of you have heard me say this. If you're in the car with your parents and you're going somewhere as a young kid and, uh, you know, they tell you that they're going to be going to Disney World or something like that, but they're driving north to Canada. Um, If you keep asking them and they say that they're going to, they apologize, but they never turn the car around. Are they really repentant for something that they've done? No, they're misleading and they're actually telling you one thing when they're actually doing something completely different. It's kind of a silly example, but it's the idea of when our words are are not followed by our actions. We're not being repentant. Repentant is a changing of our behavior so that we walk closer to God and not in our own direction. What does this have to do with circumcision? Well, if we went all the way back, and we won't go there today, but Genesis chapter 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, through you, Abraham, an entire nation will be birthed. And from that nation, the entire world will be blessed. And if you fast forward that into the New Testament, you see that from Abraham eventually came Joseph, who was the the earthly father of Jesus. So through Abraham became Israel. Through Israel came Jesus, and from Jesus, the entire world is blessed. That's how that all was. But in the process of doing that, Abraham and God had a covenant, and God said to Abraham in in Genesis 17, you must be, and all of your people must be circumcised before me. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, you can look that up, okay? If you're saying, what exactly is that? Talk to someone close to you. Just don't look it up yourself because I don't know what you're going to find. Ask someone about it, okay? But we're just going to pretend for argument's sake everybody knows what we're talking about, okay? Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Ouch. Right? Why did God tell him to do this? I think this is so powerful. Even in the way our bodies are designed. Circumcision, physical, is a cutting away of flesh. Setting apart, a physical cutting away. Think about the imagery that God used in circumcision to Abraham saying, you're not just my people, but you are different. You are set apart. In fact, you are being cut away from the culture around you. You got it? You see how significant that is? In fact, and because of that cutting away, anybody that would meet you or know you in that capacity, would know that you belong to me, that you're Jewish, you're part of the, Isra- the nation of Israel, you are different because of that. You with me so far? So important, circumcision was so important, and it was not just a command for Abraham, but the command in Genesis 17 says, for you, your whole family, and for all the generations to come, this is a decree that I give you. Why? Because you're different. You don't belong to the world. You belong to me. And when you belong to God, you don't just say it in word. You live it in practice. That's what we're supposed to do. Israel, after being in slavery for over 400 plus years, after they came out, they were practicing this. They went into the wilderness and the new generation that came up, the scripture says, did not practice circumcision. And Joshua or Moses did not require them to do that. That was sinful. They did not participate in the wilderness. One of the covenantal commandments that God gave them. So when God brought them into the promised land, before there was a Jericho, before there was a war, before there was any walk around the wall, there was a moment that God said, before we take any step into this land, you need to get your heart right before me. Think about that. Before the impossibility was even addressed, God said, look to yourself and ask yourself if there's anything in you that's unrighteous. And to the people of Israel, what was the unrighteous thing? They weren't circumcised. So he said, before you enter in as my people, you've got to be my people. We have a contract. We have a covenant. You've got to go circumcise everybody. So they did it. That was the first thing that they did. This is why I think this is so important, man. This is, this is cool stuff. Not the circumcision part, but the other part and the significance of it is cool, and here's why. Circumcision was connected with identity, guys. God was telling these people who lived as slaves for 400 years, who walked in the wilderness for 40, who saw the generation before them die, and they were raised in the wilderness and didn't really know who they were except for this law that God gave them in the mountain. They're moving into the promised land, and He said, Before you do anything, remember who you are. You are my people, you belong to me, you are my kids. I am your God and you are my children. Remember in Exodus 20 last week when we talked about the Ten Commandments? What did he say? And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. The God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first thing he did before he gave them guidelines, he said, you belong to me. And the identity is so important. When we lose our identity, the mountains in front of us become impassable. When you and I lose our identity and forget who God is, we forget who God is in relationship to us, how God has welcomed us in. As John said, how great is the love the Father's lavished upon us for that we can be called what? Children of God. When we forget about our identity, all of the things in front of us that seem impossible stay impossible. We need to come to a place of repentance. We need to come to a place where we're not just playing with sin, but we are walking in Purity. Now, if you have any long period of experience in the Christian church, people can take this and immediately turn this around and say, Well, you're being legalistic. That's just so ridiculously extreme. And here's what I think is absolutely extreme the Old Testament is extreme. There's stuff in there that I still read and I go, Really? That's so harsh. God has said over and over again, purge the evil from within you, purge the evil from within you. Why does he say that? Because God's plan for his people is that there not be, as Paul said, not even a hint, Paul says, of sexual immorality, but of any type of immorality. He's not saying we're perfect, he's saying, carve out all of the things in your life that don't honor me, get rid of them, and remember who you belong to. Do we do that today? Do I do that today? Or do I allow things into my life that I've just made commonplace? There's not a big deal with what I listen, excuse me, what I listen to or the things I go to or the entertainment that I pay attention to. Oh, it just has this. It just has that. There's just oh that. You know what? I'm an adult. You know, if this is for mature audiences only, what is that mature audiences only? The way I look at that is, you know, if, If a kid can't watch it, why would an adult? In God's world, mature audiences only. So I started thinking about this. I'm going to be real honest with you because I've been a pagan sinner over my life and I want to make sure that you all know that. Silence. (laughs) I loved sitcoms when I was in high school, college, and afterwards. Loved, loved, loved sitcoms. Some of you, situational comedies, they're funny shows. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Just want to make sure. Two of the ones that were really, really popular when I was younger, okay? Friends and Seinfeld. Okay? Some of you know those, right? Friends. Everyone knows that? And then the Seinfeld one. Everyone know what I'm talking about? Right? Okay. So everyone knows that, okay? Friends ran... For ten seasons, Seinfeld ran for nine seasons. By the end of those seasons, all of those people that were actors were making over a million dollars an episode. That's the way that that worked, okay? has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but this is what I, this is what I think I want to know. I want you to know. If you stream some of those things today, you see this more easily than you did as we did over the years. Because over the years, the enemy is smart. Then it was once a week you got to watch something, and it was just a little dose once a week. Now when you notice it, if you watch three four episodes of anything it gets dumped on you and you're more aware of it because it's happening more quickly. In Friends, of the six friends, right, that were there, over the course of ten seasons, Joey slept with 17 different women. Phoebe and Ross slept with 16 different partners. Rachel slept with 14, Monica 13, Chandler 9. You didn't think you were going to hear this fact this morning when you came to church, did you? Okay? You think that's bad. Seinfeld, this hurts my heart because it's so funny in so many ways. Elaine Bennis slept with 50 men over the course of nine seasons with Seinfeld. 50 men! Jerry slept with 73 women in nine seasons. Now, you could look at that and think, why do you even care? How do you even know that? Well, Google, you know, in our class last week... David calls it Pastor Google, so I call Pastor Google. So we just ask and we look and we research it. This is the fact. This is what's going on. Why am I sharing this with you? Because today, God may not physically be calling us to be circumcised. That's a choice we choose to make. Paul says in Romans 2.29 that now it's about the circumcision of our heart our hearts cut away from the world so that we're honoring God and not honoring the world. So I'm sharing that with you because the things that we allow in our lives, and I'm not going to call out any other modern episodes or TV shows today. I think we're wise enough and we all have the Holy spirit in us. If we're believers to know what is God and what is not God, but there are so many different things we allow into our lives today that we just nod our heads and we just let it come to pass. Oh, I'm familiar with that. And what we don't realize is that it's saying something, it's teaching something. And what it's really teaching us is that it's okay to have one foot in the world, even though we're supposed to have both feet close to Jesus. You with me? Repentance is a big deal. So I challenge you this morning to have a heart of repentance, to walk through a relationship with God where you're truly cut away. And ask yourself is it really legalistic? Or is it really just God saying, my relationship with you is so beautiful that I don't want anything to get between us and you, me and you. Any type of sin creates a barrier between you and me. I'm willing to bet that if you went to your spouse and said, would you just mind if I had a one-night stand with somebody next week? Are you cool with that? If your spouse doesn't have a problem with that, come talk to me. <laughs> it's just one time. What's the big deal? It would destroy and can destroy a relationship. God doesn't want us to put one foot in the world and one foot towards him. He wants us to be cut apart, set apart. If you're going through an impossible situation, first ask yourself, is repentance part of your approach? and asking God to search your heart. The second thing in trusting God through the impossible is to remember his provision and his promises. Remember his provision and remember his promises. Look at verse 10 with me in chapter 5. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain, The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. You say, what does that have to do with the promises and the provision that you're talking about? The very first Passover occurred over 40 years before they were in the promised land. You remember there were 10 plagues in Egypt. The 10th plague was when the firstborn son of all Egypt would die. And God gave instruction to Egypt or to the Israelites and said, take a lamb, a spotless lamb. And he gave specific instructions how to kill the lamb and take the blood and put the blood over their doorposts and then go into that home. And when the angel of death came through that night, he would look at the doorposts that had the blood of the lamb on it and he would pass over those homes, preventing death to come into that home. And they saw Two things in there. One, they saw provision that God made away from them when there was no other way. But two, the promise of God was continuing to be fulfilled in that time. Does that make sense? So the Passover time reminded them every year, historically, the nation of Israel continued to practice Passover. On the 14th day of their first month, they practiced Passover after they left Egypt through the wilderness. But before they went to fight Jericho, God said, first Be set apart and repent of any sinful activity. Two, remember promises. Remember provision. Remember how you got to where you got. Have you ever, you think, what does that have to do with me today? Have you ever looked at an impossible situation in your life and tried to fix it yourself? I have. Anyone else brave enough to stand with me? You know, not stand, just raise your hand. Some of you are like, "Mm, I'm over here. It's good ever try to fix it yourself, even though you don't know if you have the ability to fix it, you're going to try, you're going to try, you're going to try. God is showing them in this situation, this is not your battle to fight. You're my people. Come to me with a clean heart. Remember my provision. Remember my promise. It all comes back to relationship. And then after the Passover, they would have the feast of unleavened bread. And what was really cool about the unleavened bread, people would say, why didn't they have Yeast in their bread. Well, because they were, they were leaving Egypt, and it takes time for yeast to rise. So they ate bread without any yeast in it. So it didn't have any time. They continued to do this every single year for two reasons. One, to remember that God brought them out. He provided. He delivered them from Egypt. But the second thing was, yeast was left in Egypt as a reminder that anything that was sinful, anything that would take them away from God, was left behind so that they could pursue holiness with God. So do you think of the provision God has for you? Do you think of his promises this morning? When we're walking through these things together in life and we see these impossible tasks, are we mindful of how God got us through before? Do you think about the testimonies of how God has got you through difficult times before? Or do we just look at the thing in front of us and say, we're going to die? Israel did that. And they walked through the Red Sea. After 10 plagues, the water piled up on both sides. God fed them for 40 years. When they went through the Jordan, as they stepped into the Jordan, the Jordan, it says, dried up. The one side stopped, the other side went downstream, and the water backed up, way up. And it even says the town that the water backed up into so they could walk over the Jordan unto dry ground. And still, when they came into the Promised Land, and they looked at, um, and they looked at all the stuff that was there in Jericho, they still went, oh no, God brought us here so that we could die at the hands of these giants. And they saw all of his provision. This is so important for you and for me. If we're going to be able to overcome the things in front of us and trust God through the impossible, don't just look at the thing that looks impossible that God needs to come through. Remember the times he has. So I ask you this morning, what has God done in your life? How has he shown you the ability to go through impossible situations? How has he provided for you? That's one of the keys that help you grow and build relationship let him, tr- let him walk through the impossible with you. And then the last thing in trusting God through the impossible is to obey his instruction. You see, it's not just about repentance and coming to him with a clean heart, letting him search us. It's not just about reminding ourselves of the provision and his promises, that God is good and he's faithful and he will do what he said he's done. He's already shown how he's faithful and he will be faithful in the future. That's not just the only reason or the only way to see God work through the impossible. The last thing, and this is really, really important, is to obey his instruction. We have to do what God asks us to do in the midst of the impossible situations. Sometimes people get stuck in the prayer and the repentance and the thanksgiving, and God says, step out. They go, no way. I need you to do this. And God says, I'm giving you an opportunity to go into this, to step into this. It may not be any of the things that you're talking about. You know what I thought about this morning? And I say this because I go, wow, look what God's been doing. I wonder if we had a conversation with people across our church and said, the area that you're serving in ministry right now or whatever God capacity is using you in, would you say a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, that you had the confidence, the capacity, or the skill set to do what you're doing, how you're doing it today. I wonder how many of us would say, I never would have thought God would allow me to be a part of this thing I'm doing today. That almost seems like an impossibility years ago. And yet, one of the reasons why it happened was because of your obedience to step into it. You with me? You hear that? This is so important, so important. God's going to do great things in my life. I've heard people say that. And then they don't take a step. They don't walk. They just wait. And God says, do it. I've called you to do it. Take a step. You know what? It's going to look messy in the beginning, but that's okay. Just keep walking. Israel had to obey. They had to obey and they were circumcised. They had to obey and they celebrated the Passover. Joshua obeyed and relayed the instructions to Israel. Israel obeyed the instructions he gave them, not just what order to march in, which was very specific, how to march with the trumpets, walk in silence every day for six days, and then seven times the last day. When to march, six days, and then a final day, and when to shout. For them to see that victory, they had to be repentant, they remembered God's promises, His provision, and they followed what He asked them to do. I can't emphasize how important that is for each of us today. We're not going to close this morning in a worship song, but we are going to have some music, and I want to do something a little bit different. We've done this before at the church, but I'd I'd like to give you an opportunity to take some time, because we spend a lot of time when we gather as a church in worship And relationship and hearing the word. But response is something that we need to have intentional time around. When we allow God to work through us. Or I should say, if we want God to work through us. So my questions to you are directly connected to the three things I just said. Respond. Back up for a second. Respond with repentance. Remember his provision and promises. Obey his instruction. Instead of looking at them in terms of bullet points, I reworded them in terms of questions. And I want you to ask yourself each of these questions. Here's the first one. Is my relationship with God strong or is it strained? Is my relationship with God strong or is it strained? If your relationship with God is strained, there can be multiple reasons why that could be the case. But have you allowed something in your life that has created a wall between you and him? Is there something that right now, as we take some time and reflect today, that the Holy Spirit's going to talk to you about and say, part of the reasons why you're struggling to hear God is because you're putting something or you're allowing something in your life that needs to be taken out. That's about a heartbeat of heart of repentance. You with me? Second question. Do I meditate on how God keeps his promises? keeps his promises you know where i see this one fail a lot when bad things happen in our lives are we quick to run to god and still thank him for his faithfulness or do we blame god for all of the bad things that happen why does god allow this why is god doing this to me why is god why is god why is god no do we meditate on his promises that he's kept his promises In the Old Testament, there were stones. We didn't read this because it was earlier on in Joshua, but when the 12 tribes walked through the Jordan, God gave them instruction for one person from each tribe to go back into the the riverbed, take a stone, put it on their shoulder, and walk out and build a memorial. And it said when the generations would see those 12 stones, they'd say, what is this? And it would be a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people when he walked them into the promised land. Each one of us have stones of remembrance. Do you, do I meditate on how God keeps his promises? When I'm mindful about what he's done in my past, I can be more at peace to believe that he will overcome the things I deal with in my future. And the last question, the last question, am I willing to do whatever he asks of me? Am I willing to do whatever he asks of me? That is a loaded question, my friends. That is a loaded question. And I know sometimes when we think about that, we think of the big things. We say, God, I heard this story about this pastor who was doing this building project and the Lord told him to empty his retirement account. Don't ask me to do that. I don't know if I could do that. Or I heard this story about this person that was working in some capacity. And, you know, I think about one of our missionaries, Marianne Lucas, as she's, she was here for how many years working in a capacity in our country in the U S and we went to one mission trip to Argentina and she never came back. And she came back for a little while, but she went back there and now she lives there full time. Lord, don't call me to missions work overseas. I don't know if I can do that. How about we not think about the big things and we just think about right now is God asking you to do something? Has he been tapping on your shoulder? Has he been nudging you saying, you know what I'm telling you? Are you willing to respond? When we come to him with a heart of repentance, we meditate on his promises and his provisions, and we obey one step at a time. Everything in front of us that's an impossibility becomes possible because it's not us fighting the fight at that point, guys. It's Jesus doing it through us. And that's the whole point of the gospel. Anything we see that's impossible to overcome, this power of sin, like I said in the worship service, it's not about overcoming sin in our own strength. It's about repenting and saying I'm a sinner and I can't fix this myself. It's about recognizing God's promise that he could promise to send a deliverer and he did so through Jesus Christ. And the last step about taking this step to experience Christ is to invite him into my heart. It's the same exact thing and the greatest impossibility that we ever could experience becomes possible because we give ourselves to God and we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So I want to take a few moments. Like I said, we won't close in a song, but with our hearts humble before the Lord this morning, would you ask each one of those questions of yourself and let the Holy Spirit speak to you for a few minutes. And then I'm going to close in prayer in a few moments.